Thank you, thank you. Man. Uh, I, I'm incredibly honored to, uh, to be here tonight. Um, I, I don't know if it would be possible to not be able to preach well after the worship we just experienced. Like, you would have to be dead to not be able to, to preach after that. That was incredible. That was incredible worship. And I, I hope that you guys know, um, it, it, even if this is your first time at, at City Life, I hope that you know that you do not have a good pastor in, in Pastor Fred. You have an incredible pastor. Um, there, there are lots of great pastors in our area, but one of the things that really stood out to me about Pastor Fred is that he is more about building God's kingdom than his own kingdom. And um, that is something that I wish you could find in more pastors, but it's not something that is easy to find. But Fred has it. And uh, I, I just want to tell you real quickly that for, for us, when I dove out to plant a church, um, I dove out and had nothing, absolutely nothing. We had no people. We had no money. We, we had absolutely nothing. And we ended up here because they allowed us to meet in this space for free. And they felt sorry for us, I think. Um, and so they're like, we won't charge you because you have no money. Um, so you can just meet here for free. And so that we was like, that's incredible. Okay, well, we're going to meet here for free. The problem is we didn't know how to turn anything on. And so, like, we didn't know how to get these screens to work. We didn't know how to get the soundboard on. And so um, it was crazy. Like, literally, we were just like, okay, God, you've blessed us with a, a space to meet. We've got some free time, you know, until we get some money, until we start a church. Um, and so we're just going to start meeting and see what's going on. But could you send someone to help us know how to turn stuff on? And uh, Fred actually reached out to me, and we went to, to uh, lunch at Panera, and um, during that conversation, I just kind of talked to him and let him know kind of where we were at. And he said, hey, come check out our service on a Saturday night, and, uh, and then we will show you guys how to do everything. And so I came, I visited with you guys, hung out at the service, and then actually uh, the following week, your media team taught our media team how to turn on the computers and run sound. And so that, that's a pretty, really cool thing. Um, so we started, we started with, uh, with, with 60 people, and uh, now we've grown to about 150 people um, on, on Sunday nights. And um, you guys, even if you don't have a fat clue who we are, you guys play a part in our story because Pastor Fred is, uh, is kingdom-minded. And uh, so I, I really am incredibly honored to, to be here. And I, I want to talk to you guys. Um, I, I want to talk to you, though, not your current state where you are right now. I want you to rewind the clock just a little bit for some of you, maybe a little bit longer for others of you. I want you to rewind and go back to your teenage self. Teenage self. I want you to go back to uh, 12, 12, 13 years old. Okay, now that is scary for some of you guys. But here's what I specifically want you to do. I want you to think about when you were that 12, 13-year-old, what was it that you wanted to be? If you could be anything back then, what was it that you said? When you were getting ready, you're in middle school, you're getting ready to go to high school, people are starting to talk to you about, hey, what are you going to be when you grow up? And you had some ideas, you had some plans. And at that moment, you probably had thoughts like, I just can't fail. You probably dreamed really, really big. And I want to know that teenage self, remember back, what did you want to be? So I just want to call on a few of you, just raise your hand, and we'll just pick a few. Yep, right there. You wanted to be J-Lo. 
She wanted to be an actress, a singer, everything. Okay, that's, that. yeah. NFL, incredible. NFL, do you have a favorite football team? Cowboys. You're actually built like a football player. That's awesome. NFL, all right, yep, yeah, back there. Veterinarian, okay, awesome, awesome. I saw another hand right here. Oh, same thing, veterinarian. You guys should get together, that's awesome. All right, we haven't heard anyone from this. Oh, yeah, way over there, I like it. Professional violinist. That's incredible. Yeah, right behind her. Serving the, are you serving in the military? Okay, that's incredible. That's awesome. All right, um, any others? Any others? Something you just dreamed of doing? We'll take one or two more. Fighter pilot in the Navy. Incredible. Are you a fighter pilot in the Navy? Okay, all right, all right. That's cool. Yeah, go for it. A writer. Incredible, incredible. Okay. Now, when I was in middle school, 12, 13 years old, the thing that I wanted to be, the thing that I felt like God had called me to be, the thing that if you ask me, when you get done with school, what are you going to do? For me, it was a rapper. (laughs) No, like like a hip-hop rap. Yo MTV Raps rapper. That's, that's, and now, now um, if, you're, if you're under the age of 27, you may not remember that uh, when I was in middle school, this was in the very, very early 90s, and the rap culture was very different than the rap culture today. Uh, the most popular rap artist at the time was a guy by the name of Vanilla Ice. <laughs> I want to emphasize vanilla ice. Now, my favorite band, though, and for some of you, you're not going to have a fat clue who I'm talking about, but for those of you that grew up in the church, you may remember my absolute favorite band of all time, and my favorite band when I was in middle school was a band called DC Talk. Yeah. Woo, that's what I'm talking about. All right. Now, DC Talk also had a, a white guy that rapped, and so that was... That was the world that I lived in. And um, I, I'm not a rapper, um, but I did actually work on this for a while. I was serious about it. And I wanted, just as we're kind of rewinding back to our, our middle school selves, I wanted to give you a little taste of, of rap. Um, this is my middle school self coming out. It, it, it would have sounded something like this. Hold it now and watch a hood wink. I'll make you stop thing. You think you're looking at Aquaman. I summon fish to the dish of the like Charlotte Swiss. I like sushi because I never touch a frying pan. Hot like wasabi when I bust rhymes. Big like the end rhymes because I'm all about value. Burt Campus got the mad hits. You try to match wits. You try to homie butter bust through. Go make a break and take a fake. I like stinking and shake it like vanilla. It's the finest of the flavors. Go see the show because then you know the vertigo is on the go because it's dangerous. You have to sign a waiver. Whew, that's it. That's my rap. Now, something happened from our middle school years to our present day, and that's what I want to talk to you about. Uh, Specifically, I want to talk to you about living a great story, because I think that if I could talk to your middle school self, you had great ideas and dreams of living an incredible story. But something happened, and if you're in middle school now, you need to listen to this, because something's going to happen between middle school and about your 20s. And what happens is life. It's the reality of life. 
And you go from saying, I'm going to conquer the world, we're going to change the world, we're going to do anything we can dream of, we're going to make a huge difference, to saying, ah, that's hard work. So tonight, I want to talk to you about how to have a great story. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Donald Miller. He's an author, and he wrote a book that has captured me in, in the idea of living a great story. And in that book, he defines story. It's going to come up for you on the screens. He says that a story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. A story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. Now let's go back to your middle school selves for just a little bit. In middle school, you wanted something. Something. You wanted to be a veterinarian. You wanted to be a professional violinist. You wanted to fly jets. You wanted to be a writer. You wanted to play in the NFL. That was your story. And I just want to just throw it out there that there is a great chance that if you are a Christian, that desire, that dream was actually from God. Why, why did you, out of all the people in the world, why did you aspire to do that? Why did you want to do that? You had a dream. It was a story. And a character, a story is a character who wants something. You wanted something, but what happened? Anyone that's in their late 20s and above knows the thing that happened was conflict. Conflict happened, and it caused our dreams to shatter. But I want to talk to you about how to have a great story. If you're going to have a great story, it's, it's not just saying, I want something. It's the ability to overcome that conflict, the conflict in your life. And I would say today, even for those of you that are no longer middle schoolers, if you're in your 30s, your 40s, or 50s, you are still called by God to live a great story. And here's the thing. When, as a Christian, when we live a great story, God gets all the glory. We live for God. We do, uh, we do crazy things for God. We do immeasurably more than we could even imagine in the name of God. And God gets the glory, and we live an incredible story. And so I want to talk to you, though, about that conflict. Because every single one of us is going to deal with that conflict at some point in our life. I love what um, author and pastor Mark Batterson says. He says, we need to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Instead, we need to start playing offense with our lives. What happens to us in middle school? Well, in middle school, we play offense with our lives. We say, this is what I want. I'm just going to go out there and get it. But then something happens. Conflict happens. In our, in our late high school years, in college, conflict, reality sets in. A conflict happens, and we stop dreaming. We stop living an exciting life, and we just start to settle back. And we say, okay, I've got bills to pay. I've got a family to raise. I can no longer dream and do something crazy because there's too much risk involved. But... A story is a character that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. I love this quote by Mark Batterson because it's this idea of, of playing a basketball. How many of you guys play basketball? Okay. Um, how many of you played a video game of basketball? Okay. How many of you know what basketball is? Okay, there we go. All right. So um, in, in basketball, if you've ever even seen the game of basketball, there are not um, players that play offense and then they go off the field and players that come in and play defense. You play both offense and defense. And when you're in basketball and you're on offense, you're controlling the game. You're dribbling, you're shooting, you're passing, and the defense is reacting to you. And in middle school, you controlled the game. You dreamed big. You said, we're just going to go out here and get it. I want to be. And you, there were no limitations. There was no fear. It's just like, I'm going to be this. I'm going to do this. But then something happened, and you started falling back and saying, now I'm going to play 
defense. And what is defense? Well, defense is simply reacting. Defense is waiting for something to happen, and then you move towards it. And so when you're playing basketball, the offense person is moving, and defense is not creating anything new. You're simply watching what life is bringing to you, and you're reacting to it. And so instead of going out there and taking holy risks for God, you sit back and just wait for life to happen to you. And this is why far too many Christians aren't living an exciting life for God. And far too many Christians wait until their world falls apart. And when cancer comes, or when they lose a job, or when a loved one dies, then they come rushing to God and saying, God, help me out. Now it's time to live a great story. But God has wired you to live a great story for His glory today. The question is, how are you going to overcome that conflict? Well, I, I think that um, for me, my middle school self, if, if, I, could, if I could go back, um, I, I would have a lot more courage than I do today. When, when I was in middle school, um, eighth grade, I went to a, a Peninsula Pilots baseball game. Anyone ever been to a Peninsula Pilots baseball game? Okay, awesome. Um, I went to a Peninsula Pilots baseball game, and we went with some friends, and um, midway through the game, it started raining. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a baseball game, if you understand how baseball works, but when it rains, they don't send you home. They do a rain delay. And they pull out this giant tarp, and they just cover the field, and you just sit there, and you wait. There's no entertainment. There's nothing going on. You just wait until the rain stops. And you don't know if it's going to stop any moment, if it's going to go on for days. You just sit there and wait. Well, me and my middle school friends, we waited for about five minutes, and then we just got bored. And we started trying to figure out something to do and somewhere to go. And one of my friends noticed that down near the field, there was a gate. And the gate led to the field, and the gate just happened to be cracked open just a little bit. And one of my friends said, um, hey, why don't we go down there and go through that gate? Now, middle school Rob was like, that's a great idea. That sounds fun. That's an adventure. Let's go for it. So me and my friends got out of the bleachers. We went down, went through the gate. And once we got through the gate, we saw that there was a dugout. And so we went into the dugout. Now, the players weren't there. They were back in the locker room. But for us, it was a lot of fun. We were hanging out like they had all the seeds that they'd been spitting on the ground. And we we're like, this is awesome. And we we're like standing there and looking out at the field. And after about five minutes, we got bored. And so someone looked out and said, you see that tarp on the field? That would make a great slip and slide. <laughs> Being middle school Rob, I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. So we stood up and all of us stood up on, on the steps and they said, okay, on the count of three, we're going to go. One, two, three. And I busted out of that um, out of that dugout like it was on fire. And I'm running as hard as I can. And I look back and I notice that all of my friends had chickened out. <laughs> and so at this point, I'm running solo onto the field, but I hear some cheers from the crowd and I think, this is my moment. <laughs> so I run and I dive onto the tarp that is over the field. And I want to tell you, it is the world's greatest slip and slide. I slid for a very long time. It felt like an eternity, but I slid for so long, eventually my body turned and I started going sideways and I made it the length of the field. It was incredible. And the whole crowd sees this. And so when I stand up, they just start cheering. Woo! Because they're all bored out of their mind because there's no entertainment. 
And so I stand up and I lift my hands in victory and like everyone's going crazy. And then one of my friends, because I went first, he got the courage. And so he runs out on the field and he slides and it seems like forever. And the crowd goes nuts. And then he stands up and puts his hands up in the air. And we're jumping up and hugging each other and fist bumping and high-fiving like we just won the World Series. And we're just like, this is amazing. And we started walking off the field to be greeted by a police officer. Now, middle school Rob did not understand that it is illegal to run onto a field and to slide onto a tarp. And the police officer greeted us and he said, uh, can you give me one reason why I shouldn't arrest you? And at that point, he saw that we both pooped our pants and our, our blood just drained from our faces. And he said he could tell that we were just punk middle school kids. And he said, hey, I know you didn't mean any harm by this, but if I ever see you on the field again, I'm going to arrest you. Now... I still say that's a great story. I'm glad I did it. But if I were to go to adult Rob today and I were sitting at a Peninsula Pilots game and it started to rain, my first thought would be, let's go home. I don't want to wait. This is boring. Let's just get out of here. But let's say I ended up staying for a little bit and one of my friends said, hey, there's a gate that is open. I would say, oh, great. Let's go shut it. Let's make sure no one goes on the field because that's dangerous. That would be risky. But let's just say that one of my friends convinced me to actually go into the dugout. And then one of those friends convinced me to go out on the field and slide. I, I would have been saying, there's no way I'm going to slide on that tarp. Because if I go out there and slide on that tarp, I'm going to get all wet. And then the game's going to continue. And I have to watch the game with soaking wet clothes. And then I have to walk out in the parking lot. And you know what happens when you walk in the parking lot with wet jeans? You get a rash. I don't want a rash. So... I'm just going to stay in my seats. I'm just going to stay in the seat and just watch nothing happen during this rain delay. But what's the difference between middle school Rob and adult Rob? Well, adult Rob is afraid to take a risk. You see, an adult Rob would have actually missed out on a great story because he would have been thinking about all the consequences and I'm not talking about consequences like sin. We should be thinking about sin consequences. I'm talking about the consequences of things like, well, what if I go out there and I do something big and I fail? What if I take a holy risk for God and it blows up in my face? What if I tell my neighbor that I'm a Christian and invite them to come to City Life Church and they tell me they don't believe in God? Then I'm going to feel awkward. What, what, I have this desire to play a, an instrument. I'm 40 years old. I've never played before. What if I jump out there and, and I have no rhythm? What am I supposed to do? Then I'll look like a fool. But see, a, a story is a character that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. And so many of us have gotten past our middle school selves and we've gotten into our 20s and our 30s and our 40s and our 50s. And we've allowed the conflict to stop us from living a life for God. Well, tonight I want to take you through a text of one of the greatest stories in the history of the world. And it's not just a, uh, a, a, like one of the best stories in the Bible. It is literally one of the greatest stories ever told. I, I want to tell you about the story of David versus Goliath, but we're actually not even going to get to Goliath. We're going to talk about the stuff that happened before David fought Goliath. Now, David and Goliath, even if you're new to the church scene, there's a great chance that you know the story of David and Goliath. 
In fact, if you watch sports on almost a weekly basis, some announcer is saying this is a David versus Goliath match. It's this idea of a small, um, you know, mid-market to low-market team playing a behemoth. It's this idea of of a little-known player playing a a popular all-star. And everyone knows the story of David versus Goliath. But I just want to throw out there, by looking at the story before the story, that if you and I were inserted into the story of David versus Goliath, that battle may have never happened. I want to tell you something that um, maybe if you're really familiar with the story of David and Goliath, I want to tell you a, a spin on it. I want to tell you the pre-story that some of you may not even realize happened. And that, let me give you a little bit of context before we dive into our text. Um, David is a little shepherd boy. Now, we don't know exactly how old he is. The text doesn't tell us. Most scholars think that he's about 17, 18 years old. I am not a scholar, so do not take what I'm saying as any worth. I don't understand how they get to the fact that he was 17 or 18. Because all throughout the text, they keep calling him a boy. And it's my understanding that in the Jewish culture, you became a man at the age of 12. And David, when we first meet him, he is, he is watching sheep in a field. And the reason he's watching sheep in a field is because he's not old enough to go to battle. Because all of his brothers have been sent to this battle to fight the Philistines. But David's too young, so he's a boy. So David is anywhere from the age of 11 to about 18 years old when this story takes place. And he's out in a field, and he's just minding his own business, and he's tending sheep. And his dad comes out to him and says, Hey, can you go out to the battlefield and check on your brothers? And you got to understand how important this was. Because back then, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have newspapers. We don't have newspapers anymore, but they didn't have them either. <laughs> they didn't have TV. Like, they had no way of hearing about how the battle was going. So you've got a dad who has multiple sons out on a battlefield, and for all he knows, his sons could be dead. So he goes to his youngest son, and he says, here's some food. Bring this food out, and bring it to your brothers, and check on them. Tell me how they're doing. Give me a status update. So David shows up to this battlefield, and this is what he sees. There are two armies lining up. There are the Israelites, yay, and the Philistines, dun-dun-dun. Israelites, yay, Philistines. All right, so the Philistines are the bad guys, Israelites are the good guys, and they're standing up facing one another. But most of the time, when they stand up and face each other, at some point they go out and they battle and if you've seen a movie, um, you know, any, any of the movies, Braveheart, Patriot, any movie where they line up against each other, it is the dumbest way to fight a war. But they line up in, in front of each other, and they just charge each other, and they fight. Well, you would expect this to happen, but when David gets there, no one's fighting. And he watches as this giant walks out, and the giant says, hey, here's the deal. We're, we're not going to all fight today. I just want to throw out a challenge to you. I'm defying your God. And I don't think your God is anything big. In fact, here's what we're going to do. This isn't just a battle between... um, Sorry, I just spit on you. (laughs) This isn't just a battle between the the Philistines and the Israelites. This is a battle between gods. And I defy your God. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to come out here, and I'm I'm just going to challenge any one of you. You send out one fighting man to fight me. And if you win, all of us become your slave. But if you win, we'll become your slave. And so David is seeing this, and he's like, okay, who's going to fight this guy? Did you hear what he said? He didn't just defy us. He's defying the living God. This is wrong. Someone should stand up here and battle this guy. 
But no one was willing to live a great story. Why? Because there was a conflict. And they weren't willing to overcome that conflict. And so even though they knew it was right, even though they knew God was calling them, and even though they knew victory was theirs because they were serving a living God, they stood there and they said things like, well, what if I fail? Well, what if I embarrass my family? What, what, what if I try something and it doesn't go my way? Then I'm going to be a laughing stock. And so no one moved. And this went on for days and days and days. And David gets there and he's like, this is wrong. And so he just starts talking. And he starts asking people what's going on and who's going to rise up. And this is where our text picks up. 1 Samuel 17, verse 28. It says, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are. And how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. So in the context of us knowing what's going on, David did not seek out this. He was sent by his dad. And he gets there and he sees that there's a problem. And so he's trying to figure out a solution. He's trying to figure out who's going to fight this big giant. And when his older brother Eliab hears about it, what did he say to David? He made fun of him. He put him down. He said, I know your motives. You're just here for selfish reasons. Now, I just want to say that if it was me in that scene, I would have probably ran back home to dad. Because I hate conflict. And I hate when someone's unhappy with me. In fact, I've said for, for years that I am an incredible people pleaser. Over the last few years, though, I've said that I'm overcoming being a people pleaser. Because something happened to me that changed the way that I view people and people's words. A few years ago, I preached a sermon at a church that I was on staff with, and I was not the lead pastor, and so I only got to speak a few times a year. And I got up to speak, and I spoke on the message that I thought God had laid on my heart. I spoke with conviction. I spoke the best of my ability. When I got done speaking, my wife loved the talk. My family loved the talk. My parents went to this church. Um, my friends were very supportive. The church staff was very supportive. The next day, which is Monday, um, I get to my office and I had about 20 emails from people who had told me that God had spoke to them through my talk. So I was feeling really energized because being a people pleaser, I'm also, I don't know if you've read the book, The Five Love Languages, but I'm also words of affirmation. So I feel loved when I hear positive things about what I'm doing or, or, or who I am. And so I'm feeling incredibly loved. I'm feeling like, man, God, you're using this. This is awesome. Go, God. And then Tuesday rolls around. And on Tuesday, I get a, an anonymous letter in the mail at our office. Now, this was a few years ago before that I realized that anonymous letters are written by cowards who are too afraid to say something to your face. Um, and so I actually was excited about getting a letter in the mail. I, I thought to myself, if you're going to write someone a letter, it takes a lot of effort in this day and age. It would be much easier to send an email or to send a text. But like, a you guys don't even know what a letter is. You guys don't even... Back in the day, there's this stuff called paper. And you actually took things like pens and pencils and you wrote. It was crazy. But here's the thing about letters. Letters, letters were, were, were not just like the effort in actually writing something. You actually had to pay money to send this to someone. You had to find a stamp. So I'm seeing this thing and I'm like, man, this is incredible. God must have moved in this person's life if they're going to take all this effort to write me a letter. 
So I opened up the letter, and uh, it was two pages, but it ended up being four pages because it was written front and back. And it was four pages of nothing but abuse. Like, it, it didn't start off saying, hey, you made a good effort, but you dropped the ball. It started off by just saying what an awful sermon it was. In fact, it, it said things in the first paragraph like um, that the sermon was so bad that they couldn't sleep because they were thinking about how bad it was all night long. And it said things like they looked around and they could tell that everyone in the church felt the same way as they did. And I believe it was on page two, it said um, that they were very thankful that Wavy TV 10 wasn't at our church that day to get coverage of the talk because it was so bad. Now, Wavy TV 10 had never been to our church and has never been since. Like, I don't know where they got that from. But this person, like, was ate up with how bad my talk was. Now, at that moment, it didn't matter to me that my wife liked the talk. And it didn't matter to me that I got 20 emails from people who said God had spoke to them. And it didn't matter to me that my family was proud and that my church was proud. All that mattered was one voice of a person that I didn't even know. And the power of that one negative voice weighed so much more heavily than all the positive stuff going on. So I'm sitting there feeling sorry for myself, and I'm reading the letter, and I ended up reading the letter four times. And on the fourth reading of the letter, I heard this still small voice, and, and I like to think that still small voice is God, because it's a different sounding voice than the other voices in my head, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and this still small voice, it, it speaks up and it says, even if you preached a perfect sermon, someone would crucify it. And I was like, okay, I would have never come up with that on my own. That has to be from God. Because that is such a true statement. Even if I did preach a perfect sermon, even if I said zero ums, even if I, if I got the text perfect, even if, I, if, if every single one of my jokes was funny, even if I did a perfect sermon, some knucklehead would find something wrong with my talk. And so I am allowing the power of one negative voice to outweigh all the positive voices. Why? Because I was finding my identity in people over finding my identity in God. And so from there, that little saying, it developed into something. Instead of saying preaching, it just transitioned to say, even if I was perfect, someone would crucify me. Because the truth is, I'm not perfect. And I make lots of mistakes. I say lots of ums in my sermons. I have lots of jokes that just are wah, wah. There are lots of sermons that I leave and I'm like, yeah, that, that was not a home run. I, I try to be a really good husband, but there are lots of times when I drop the ball. And I try to be a great dad to my twins. I, I have two and a half year old twins, a boy and a girl, and I try to be a great dad to them. But there are some times when I'm more consumed with my cell phone than I am with what they're doing. And I'm not perfect. And the fact is, is none of you are perfect. But even if you were perfect, someone would crucify you. How do we know that? Because the only human being to ever live this life perfectly was Jesus. And they still try to find fault with him. And they hung him on a cross for nothing. If you've ever read the story in the Gospels, he did nothing. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. And they still found a way to kill him. So what makes us think that people aren't going to find some fault in us? So you can either allow the Iliabs of this life to speak negativity over you, and you can allow them to define your story, or you can overcome the conflict. Because a story is a character that wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. 
Um, as Fred graciously said, I, I, I've turned that, that story into a book. And the book was released on August 1st. And um, I would love for you guys to read it. There's absolutely, absolutely no pressure. We will be selling it afterwards. Um, even If you can't afford it, just let me know. Um, we'll, we'll try to hook you up somehow. I'm not making a lot of money on it. But I, I will tell you that the book, um, 100% of the proceeds of this book go to um, needy children. They're mine. Um, <laughs> And so, um, Christmas is coming. <laughs> um, so, it, it, if, if the Spirit moves, uh, the book retails for $15, but we'll sell it, give you guys a discount, sell it for $10. bucks. we will sell it a- after the service. But um, the book really, though, is this idea. It, it's, this, it's this understanding that we're not perfect. But yet we've allowed other people um, to speak untruth into our lives. And we've formed our identity and we've stopped taking holy risks and we've stopped doing great things for God because we've all faced an Iliab. And some of us, though, it's not even that we face an Iliab, it's that we're afraid that we might face an Iliab. And so we don't even know if anything bad's going to happen, but we talk ourselves out of doing something great for God because what if someone puts me down? What if someone says I'm a failure? What if someone says I can't do it? Now, before we move on to our text, I, I want to flip the script for just a second because I think the Iliabs in this world are incredibly powerful. And I'm betting that some of you, the reason why you're not whatever you dreamed you wanted to be in middle school is because at some point you faced an Iliab. At some point, you faced a high school teacher who said, no, 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 you can't be in the NFL. It's too hard. No, you you can't play a a violin professionally. There's no money in that. At some point, someone said, no, you can't do it. And your life changed drastically because of an Iliad. But before we move on to our text, I just want to flip it around and just ask you guys a few questions to make sure that you are not an Iliad. Because the truth is, is that Iliads can totally destroy someone's story, but... There is a chance that some of you here are an Iliab. So I want to just throw out a few questions for you to get you thinking about if you're an Iliab or not. Number one, do I get jealous when someone's success is greater than mine? Do I get jealous when someone's success is greater than mine? If you're not familiar with the story of David versus Goliath, Iliab was David's older brother. And why was he so upset that David was there? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But what the text does tell us is that Samuel, who was a prophet of God, looked at Eliab and thought that he was going to be the next king because he was tall and he was strong and he was handsome. And God says, no, 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 no. I don't look at the outside. I look at the heart. Pass over that joker. And so he walks past Eliab and he goes down to David and he tells David that he's going to be king. And Eliab, the older brother, has to watch this. So David comes to the battlefield and, of course, Eliab is jealous and upset with him. So the question for you is, do you get jealous when someone's success is greater than yours? In whatever field you're in, when you look at Facebook and you look out and you see, you notice that most people don't put all the dirty laundry on Facebook. They only put the great things on Facebook. And when you read other people's statuses, do you say things like, man, I wish my family looked that good. And I wish I had that kind of success. And man, how come I don't have that kind of friends. Do you get jealous when someone's success is greater than yours? If so, there's a chance you're an Iliab. Number two, 
Do I find fault in someone else when they are successful? Do I find fault in someone else when they are successful? You can tell that you're an Iliab when not only can you not um, clap and applaud when someone is successful, but instead of allowing them to be successful, you quickly find fault in them. Because if you can tear them down, then it does something in your mind. They're no longer successful because they're evil. And if you can just make fun of them or find something wrong with them, then it makes yourself feel better. The question is, do I find fault in someone else when they are successful? Do you look for faults? Do you say, hey, the only reason that guy got that promotion is because, and then you fill in the blank. The only reason, the only reason that girl is dating someone is because fill in the blank. Do you find fault? Do you attack someone else? If so, you're an Iliab. Number three, can I truly be happy for someone who is better at what I do? Can I truly be happy for someone who is better at what I do. Um, I, I started a church about a year and a half ago, and uh, about three months after I started a church, a good friend of mine, uh, Jeff Mingy, started a church a couple like miles from here. So we both started churches within like a two-mile radius of each other, and we started them around the same time, and about every other week we meet um, at Panera and just talk about church. And for the first year, every time we met, eventually at some point, the numbers of, hey, how, you know, how the church number's going, at some point, numbers would come up. And for a year, every time we asked this question, my church was bigger than his church. Now, I never thought about this. I wasn't in competition. I'm not, I'm not trying to be in competition with any church. We just would talk about it, and I, my church was bigger than his church. But then uh, about like a year and a couple months in, we met one week, and, and his church had spiked. They had gained about a hundred people in one week. And he tells me this, and I am incredibly excited for him, but I also am incredibly jealous. And I left that meeting, and I went home, and I like, um, I, I started making all sorts of plans, because in my mind, we were falling apart. And I was like calling people, well, what are we going to do now? And I was, I was talking to the ushers, and I was telling the ushers, here's the deal. You guys got to make sure your count is right. Um, and in fact, I want you to start counting pregnant people twice, because I believe that that baby is a life in there. And we, we've got to get up. We got to get up with my friend Jeff. And I remember getting on my knees and actually crying out to God and, and saying, God, come on, you, you we're praying, we want to reach people. And that little still small voice spoke to me and said, did you care so much about reaching people when your church was bigger than Jeff's? Are you trying to reach people just so that people will think you're great at something? Or are you really trying to reach people for God's glory? And so in your life, in your story, can you truly be happy for someone who is better at what you do? Can you be happy for them? If not, you're an Iliab. So let's keep reading in the story and see what happens, happens next. This is what happens as soon as Eliab attacks David. David said, now what have I done? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. So I don't know if you caught what just happened, but David is attacked by Eliab, and instead of saying, woe is me, Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I guess I'm just going to eat worms. He says, dude, can I even speak? What are you doing? And then he turns away from the negativity and he keeps on going with his business. Well, why is that so important? Well, David was a man after God's own heart. And David saw that there was a problem in the world. And the problem was that a giant was calling out um, the, their God. 
And he said, this is a problem. Someone's got to raise up for us. I don't have time for your negativity, Eliab. And for some of you, you're not living the story that God has wired you to live because you're afraid of some Eliab. But your God is greater than any negativity. And you can either live to please people or you can live to please God. And so David continues on his business and he makes so much noise that it gets to King Saul. Now this is really a big deal. I don't know what your political affiliations are, and this has nothing to do with politics, but I just want to put it in perspective to you. If you were doing something so great that the President of the United States called you, you would freak out with excitement. Even if you don't like the President, you would freak out with excitement. I'm telling you, you would. Don't look at me, all you Fox News people, with judgment. I'm telling you, if the President of the United States called you. It doesn't matter if it's this president, the last president, a future president. If the president of the United States called you, you would freak out. Oh my gosh! You would be so honored. What did I do to get your attention? If he said, you were doing such an amazing job, I want to honor you, you would freak out. You would say, this is incredible. And here we have a little shepherd boy who just a few moments later was tending sheep. And now he is in the presence of the king. This is crazy stuff. He didn't run back home to dad. He didn't run home and say, woe is me. He made so much noise that the king noticed. And now he's in the presence of the king. And let's look what happens next. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go up and fight him. Saul replied, you are not able to go up against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man. And he has been a warrior from his youth. So here we have David, a little shepherd boy. He is now in the presence of the king, and he has such boldness, and he's living an incredible story. And he's like, I'm going to take on this giant. And what does the king say? No, you're not. Now, who should have been fighting Goliath? The king. But the king was too afraid and too insecure to do what he was supposed to do, and so now God was raising up this little punk shepherd boy. And I just want to throw this out to you. Some of you are little punk shepherd boys. And God has stirred something inside of you. God's given you an idea. God has, has let you see that there is a problem in this world. There is a problem. There is something not right. And you have a solution. You have an idea. And even if that idea is just telling a neighbor about God, you have something inside of you that is from God. And too many of you have said, no, 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 I can't do it. I'm afraid. You've got to live to please God and not live to please people. Because no matter what you do, someone is always going to crucify you. Someone's always going to find fault with your method or, or with your attempt or with your dream. Someone's always going to tell you you can't do it. But if it's from God, you live the story and he gets the glory. And what a great story it is to do something that people told you was impossible to do and then watch God do it. For me, um, I was told multiple times by multiple people that I could not start a church. I was told that I, I didn't have the giftedness. I was told that I didn't have the financial support. I, I was told that, um, in fact, an exact quote was, we don't need another failed church in our area. And I was told this over and over again, but see, at this point in my life, I had moved on from trying to please people and trying to please God. 
And I looked back at every single person that told me negative things and I said, hey, here's the deal. I love it that you don't believe in me. I love it that you can't see this happening because when God does something and this church is a success, he's gonna get all the glory because I'm an idiot. And you're right, I don't have the giftedness to plant a church and I'm not administratively minded and I don't have any money and I don't have any people, but God's gonna do something great. And when he does, no one's gonna be able to give Rob Shepard credit. So what is it in your life? What has God been stirring in you? What is it? What is your dream that if, if, if you don't do it, no one else is going to do it? And if you don't take that holy risk for God, you may never see the amazing things that he does through you. A story is a character who wants something and overcomes conflict to get it. The question is, are you going to overcome the conflict, whether it's imaginary or it's actual? If not, you're going to live a story that no one's going to talk about. I want to conclude by um, sharing with you some words from Paul. Paul wrote in the New Testament years later, thousands of years after David. Paul said something, though, that is so challenging. He says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, the truth is we're all a servant of something. And you can either be a servant of men's approval or you can be a servant of Christ. And if you're here today and you're saying, hey, I don't have anything. I don't have any dream. I, I, I've, I've lived way past my middle school years. I have no idea what God's called or asked me to do. Well, if you're a Christian, the Bible says if you lack wisdom, ask God and he'll give it to you. So ask God, what is it? Don't you dare tell me that you are too old to live an incredible story for God. If you're a Christian, God has a plan for you. He has put you here. You are breathing. You are living for a purpose. And if you're not fulfilling your story for God's glory, it's because you're living for the approval of other people. And if you're living for the approval of other people, you'll never have a story that leaves people praising God. So tonight, I, I just want to I just, I just challenge you through my story. I, I want to let you know that I, I, I'm still not perfect. And there are some days where there are some days where I just blow off other people's words and it doesn't affect me and there are other days where I'll get a negative blog comment on my blog or I'll get an email and it just starts to wreck me and then that voice speaks up again and says dude you're not doing this for people's approval you're doing it for God so I just want to challenge you maybe some of you have lost that middle school self maybe you stopped dreaming Maybe you had an Iliad. Maybe it was an older brother or a parent or a teacher who looked you in the eyes and said, you can't do this. And I just want to tell you, man, God is bigger than any Iliad out there. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, man, I don't even know where to start. Well, I would start by just dropping on my knees and saying, God, why am I here? What is my purpose? What, what have you given me to do? What is a holy problem out there that you've wired me to solve? And then go out there and do it for God's glory. Will you guys pray with me? God, thank you so much for this uh, incredible church. And thank you for uh, the awesome leadership and vision of Pastor Fred. God, thank you for the incredible time of worship. And God, I just ask that you would speak to our hearts as we continue to worship. God, I ask that you would speak truth, that your voice would be louder than the other voices in our head. God, I ask that we would leave from here striving to please you. God, thanks for your encouragement. Thanks for your love. Thank you for your patience.
in Jesus' name, amen.